How's everybody this morning? Man, you guys did a great job that time. Most of the time when I say that, I get like silence and crickets. So it uh, sounds like you guys are all uh, excited and happy to be here. And I'm, I'm really, gr- uh, really just thankful to see you and just glad that you could uh, come out and, and join us this morning. My name's uh, Robert McKinney. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the church at Blue Ridge. And uh, we're just so excited for uh, all the things that God is doing uh, through us here in Blue Ridge and uh, excited that, that you've come to check us out and, and perhaps maybe even uh, be a part of that. And actually, if this is your first time this morning or maybe your first couple of times, you've actually come at a at a perfect moment kind of in the life of our church. We're, uh, we've only been uh, meeting corporately since October, so we are brand spanking new. Uh, it doesn't get any newer than this. And uh, we're, we're actually uh, kind of in the middle of a brand new sermon series uh, for the past two weeks. Ted has been preaching on our vision and mission as a church. So uh, think about who we, uh, who we want to be as a church, and then because who we want to be informs what we do, uh, then what, what we want to do. And so uh, our vision as a church is, is just really simple. We want to be a, a community of people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus, who make disciples here in Blue Ridge and, uh, and around the world. That's, that's the kind of people, the type of people that we want to be as a church. And because of that, our mission is really simple. We want to go and make disciples. We want to share the gospel and through that, make disciples uh, in the name of Jesus. And so uh, Ted Ted did an awesome job uh, kind of explaining that, walking through that. And so for the next four weeks as a church, we're going to spend some time talking about our core values. Now, uh, maybe you've heard that term before, maybe you haven't, but a core value is kind of a, a defining characteristic, right? Um, Think of them as, as boundary markers, if you will. If, uh, if this is our vision and our mission, we, we create or we establish these core values, these boundary markers, to help us ensure that we're uh, accomplishing our mission, our mission and we're becoming the type of people that we believe God has called us to be. And you'll actually probably see on the screen there uh, uh, our core value diagram there. Uh, we've got a triangle. Uh, scripture, kingdom, mission, and community. Uh, are our four core values. And so, uh, as I said, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at, uh, from the Scriptures, from God's Word, uh, just what those mean and why they're important to our church. And so, this morning, we're going to begin with kingdom. Uh, now, it may seem somewhat odd to you. Uh, it was to me when I, when I first started considering it, to have uh, the idea of kingdom as a core value. I think scripture, community, mission, those all they seem pretty standard, right? Uh, but, but kingdom. But the strangest thing is Ted and I were really considering and praying about this over these choices and, and studying the scriptures and seeing how God had designed the church to operate, what he had designed them to be. Uh, we became very much convinced that kingdom had to be, had to be one of our core values. In fact, we were so compelled by it uh, that we decided to make kingdom the centerpiece of our core values. I don't know if you noticed in the, the diagram that was just up, but kingdom's in the very center. It's in the very center. Uh, it was kingdom, we decided, this idea of kingdom that we're going to talk about, that would inform the rest of the core values, the rest of the characteristics that define us as the church at Blue Ridge. So that begs the question, right? What do I mean by kingdom? Well, of course, we're referring to God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. But what exactly is that? As I was thinking about this week, this week, studying the scriptures, praying, I, you know, I, I came to realize 
at least for me, and I think maybe for many of you too, we've read that phrase in the Bible before. If, you're, uh, if you've read your Bible before, if you're, if you're at least somewhat familiar with it, if you've been to church somewhat, you've heard that phrase used, right? The kingdom of God. But when pressed, man, even I was really hard to like, okay, what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? We've heard other people talk about it, but what it really means is kind of murky, right? Now, but it's important to us, and so we, we kind of have to know what it is as the church at Blue Ridge because it's one of our core values. And, and also because it's a, it's a strand or a theme or an idea that's interwoven in the Scriptures from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, one of the major themes in the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. So uh, it's a good thing to know what it is. Now, this morning, we don't, we don't have the time because you guys don't want to put up with me for that long. We don't want to take the time this morning to kind of walk through every detail about the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. But I think to help us and to get us where I want to take us this morning, there's a couple things that we can say about the kingdom uh, by way of summary that will give us a really good idea of what it is, all right? And I think you're going to see those on the screen up there too. Uh, the first one is this. The kingdom was promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were these messengers called prophets who proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. The good news was that God had not abandoned his people, but would send a Messiah king to save them. Jesus preached this same message, this same good news, also called the gospel, in the New Testament, and declared himself, he declared himself to be the Messiah king who was bringing God's kingdom to earth. So the kingdom was promised in the Old Testament. Second. The kingdom is God's rule and reign, all right? Kingdom is not just a set of borders or this expansive plot of land, as, as we're probably tempted to think. It is that, but it's so much more. The kingdom is a, is a place, yes, in one sense, it's the entire creation because God made and owns everything. So everything is a part of, of his kingdom, but it's also much, much more. It's anywhere and anything God's rule and reign have come to bear upon, including his people and their hearts and their minds. So the kingdom is God's rule and reign. Third, the kingdom of God is not the church. It's not the church. It is the church. But it's much bigger than the church. Um, the kingdom of God is all of God's people, or excuse me, the church is all of God's people who have trusted Jesus to pay for their sins, to grant them forgiveness. And the church has sworn allegiance to Jesus as their king. And he has enlisted all of them, all of us, if you're in Christ this morning, and has sent all of us out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, God's coming rule and reign in Jesus. So the kingdom of God is not the church. It's, it's bigger even than the church. And then the last thing that I think will help us this morning is the kingdom of God is already but not yet. Now that seems contradictory, right? But let me explain. There's a sense in which God's rule and reign, his kingdom, is already true, right? We know this instinctively because Jesus has defeated the power of sin on the cross, right? freeing his people to live under his reign instead of the power of sin. This is why if you're a believer this morning, you're empowered to, to live a different life than those who are not believers, than unbelievers. It's because you're no longer in bondage to the power of sin. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet, right? Because the effects of sin still remain. We still face all sorts of pains, physical pains, emotional pains, and we still die, right? One day we're all going to die. 
all of these bad things, all of these sad things, all of this will be swept away one day when God's rule and reign is fully revealed. So the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. All right? So God's kingdom is His rule and reign coming to bear upon the entire creation through His Messiah King Jesus. That's what the, the kingdom of God is. The story of the kingdom of God is the story of the gospel. Through Jesus, God has retaken what Satan and sin tried to steal, and He's commissioned His people in the church to preach the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, and to call His lost children, God's lost children, to repent and believe. And as they do, as we do that, as we declare the gospel to our our friends and neighbors, God's rule and reign is extended, much like an army retaking lost ground. So God has promised that one day soon He's going to send King Jesus again and He's going to finish the work that He began and finally reclaim the entire creation for God's glory. So as Ted and I, as we're preparing to plant this church and we're thinking about, okay, what's going to define us as a church? I mean, kingdom has to be a part of it. Kingdom has to be a part of it. In fact, there's no better starting point than the kingdom of God. We want all we do as a church, all that we are as a church, to be for the kingdom of God. We want to see His rule and reign come to bear in each of your lives and and every single person's life here in Blue Ridge. We want to see this happen as the gospel takes root in you. And as the church at Blue Ridge, we want to join God uh, in building His kingdom. God's on this mission to push back the darkness here in Blue Ridge and and around the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that. God is building a kingdom for His glory here in Blue Ridge and around the world. And man, that's something that Ted and I can get excited about. So that that was the thought process that we had. That's what was going through our minds. So if kingdom is one of our core values as a church, in fact, if it's the centerpiece, what does that mean for us as a church? How does that affect us as a church? And even you as individuals. Well, what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to go to the scriptures, and I want to, I want to spend our time exploring that. What is that? How does kingdom affect who we are? And to do that, I want to look at a passage that Ted read in Luke chapter 13. So go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 13. And here we have this story of Jesus' encounter with a woman in the synagogue. And then right after it, in Luke chapter 13, uh, we have these two parables about the kingdom of God. So uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, the story is in 10 through 17. Um, I'm actually going to just tell you that story. I'm going to kind of retell it here in just a moment. And then we're going to look really closely at the two parables that follow it in verses 18 through 21. Okay? So I'm going to retell the story of Jesus with the, and the woman and their encounter in the synagogue. And then, I, then we're going to look closely at these two parables. And then we'll make some application and we'll be done. All right? So at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is making his final journey towards Jerusalem. Okay? He's making his final journey towards Jerusalem. In fact, just a little earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows where he's going, and he knows what's about to happen. He's about to be crucified, all right? 
And on this particular day, uh, Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues. And he's done this several times before in Luke's gospel. And it always seems to end <laughs> very badly, right? He either, uh, uh, they either conspire to, to kill him or to kick him out of the synagogue and sometimes to kick him out of town in general, right? Uh, and this time is, is really not going to be any different. The synagogue was a, was a place in, in Jesus' day where the Jews would gather weekly for worship. And as a part of that service, a synagogue leader, like the one that, that we have in the story that Ted read, um, he would come up and he would read from the Old Testament. That's what he would do. He'd read from the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And then someone would teach. Now, it's a little bit different than, than say, our church services here because any qualified man in the, in the congregation could stand up and teach. If you were a man and you were qualified to teach the Scriptures, you could do that. And then sometimes they would invite special speakers to come in and teach. And for whatever reason, Jesus was that man uh, that day. All right, He was teaching in the synagogue, and there was a woman there, if you remember from our story. Now, women were welcome in the synagogue. They could participate to a, to a certain extent, and they could... Um, they could be a part of what was going on. But, but I promise you that on this day, this particular woman, nobody cared that she was there. Nobody even probably noticed her. She had drawn no attention. She was nameless. In fact, probably everyone there avoided her. She was afflicted by a spirit that disabled her. She wasn't possessed like you're thinking in the, in the movies or, or anything like that. She wasn't possessed like that. But an evil spirit afflicted her with some sort of physical disorder that caused her to be bent over so severely that she couldn't straighten herself up. She, had a, she was a hunchback. She, she couldn't straighten herself up. And what makes it even worse is that she had been like this for 18 years. Nearly two decades, this woman had been tormented and crippled by a demon. She was unimportant, unwanted, a nameless woman that everyone avoided. To everyone in her world, this woman was practically invisible. But on this day, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And he did something that no one for nearly 20 years had done. He noticed her. Now, surely there must have been many more important people in the synagogue that day who were vying for this famous or perhaps we should say notorious man's attention. But Jesus noticed her, and he called her over to himself, and he healed her. He performed a miracle right there in the middle of the synagogue. He freed her from the evil spirit's power and healed her hunchback and enabled her to stand up straight for the first time in two decades, nearly 20 years. He makes much of this woman that everyone had forgotten and thrust her center stage. She is in the limelight. Now, she is in front of everyone, and she is with Jesus. Everyone saw her now, and everyone knew who she was now. Her story was known by everyone, and it was forever entwined with Jesus' story. And think about this, forever recorded in Holy Scripture. She went from a nobody to somebody just through her encounter with Jesus. And this woman, in response to what Jesus had done for her, is just overcome with joy and gratitude. And her response is natural, right? She glorifies God for what has just happened. But then the story shifts, right? 
No sooner than Jesus had finished healing this poor woman did the leader of the synagogue step in and he was infuriated. He was furious at what Jesus had done. Jesus had broken God's law regarding the Sabbath. And it's important to say broken God's law regarding the Sabbath in his mind. In his mind. And this synagogue leader rebuked Jesus to the crowd. Jesus had made the offense in in the synagogue leader's mind, but instead of addressing Jesus, the leader addresses the crowd in an attempt to shame Jesus. The synagogue leader says, or essentially says, what ought to have happened this day is that Jesus should have healed this woman on one of the other six days of the week, not on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. The Sabbath day was no time for healing, and there were likely men and women in the crowd who were shaking their heads in agreement with this man's callousness. Their anger and their lack of compassion, it angered Jesus. And Jesus answers this man's rebuke. He says, well, he answers the man's rebuke, but he really answers the entire crowd there. He says, you hypocrites. He says, essentially, the same Sabbath law that applies to humans, well, guess what? It also applies to Sabbath, to animals, if you're interpreting the law correctly. And guess what? Everybody in the synagogue that day had violated it because it was customary in Jewish life for, on the Sabbath for a Jewish person to allow their, their oxen or their donkey to untie them from the stable or the manger and to allow them to, to walk to water and drink. Well, guess what that is? That's work. They had all violated it. They had all violated, but guess what? They made an exception. They made an exception to the rule for their own convenience, right? And Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, if a donkey is so important that an exception can be made, how much more important is the healing of a daughter of Abraham? One of their own people, one of their own people nonetheless, who had been in bondage to an evil spirit for nearly 18 years and stooped over. No, Jesus says, what ought to have happened this day is exactly what happened, exactly what I did. Jesus essentially reminds the people and reminds the synagogue leader that they know what the law says, they know what it reads, but they know nothing of the God who wrote it. Because he is a God of holiness and justice, absolutely, uncompromisingly. But he's also a God of mercy and grace. God had given the Sabbath law to promote worship, not to stifle it. And there was no better act of worship on the Sabbath day than to show mercy to one of God's own children by releasing her from from bondage to the kingdom of darkness, from this evil spirit. This is exactly what what should have happened on the Sabbath day. And then Luke finishes the story in verse 17. Listen to what he says. He says, And he said these things, and Jesus said these things, as he said them, all his adversaries were put to shame. The synagogue leader tried to shame Jesus and ended up shaming himself and everyone else there. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, if you were reading along in the story, you get to this part and you think, okay, done. The end. Jesus wins. Let's all go home and eat chicken, right? Church is over. I, I don't think so. All right. It may seem like the topic is about to change, but Luke gives us a little clue that it's not really going to change at all, that Jesus is not finished. 
He says in verse 18, he, uh, Luke writes, He said, therefore. Now that little word, therefore, means that everything Jesus is about to say is connected to everything that came before it. This encounter in the synagogue is very important. It's, it's going to explain everything that Jesus is about to teach. In fact, Jesus is going to use it as one big sermon illustration, actually. Now, uh, now let's look at these two parables and, and let's connect Let's connect them to the story, all right? Um, the two parables begin in verse 18, and they, they go through, through 21. Now, uh, a parable really is, is just a story, okay? It's, a, it's an everyday, real-to-life story, something that the people listening to Jesus would have easily identified with, something in everyday life, like farming and baking. And that's exactly what our two parables are about. They're about farming and baking, all right? And their, their purpose, the parable's purpose, they're always twofold. One purpose is to help explain or clarify what Jesus is teaching for those who are willing to listen and understand. But then the second purpose of the parables is to confuse and to distort for those who are not willing to listen and not willing to understand. That's why if you read in the Gospels, when Jesus tells a parable, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they never get it. It never makes sense to them because their heart and their minds are in the wrong place. Right. So let, let's look at this first parable. Jesus says, uh, beginning down in verse 18, he says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a, a grain of mustard seed that a, a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Okay. Now, a mustard seed is very, very tiny. Very tiny. In fact, it's, it's one of the smallest seeds that the people in Jesus' day would have known about. But from it, according to Jesus, will grow a tree so big that it will serve as a refuge for many birds of the air. All right? Now, this image of a kingdom as a great tree that provides shelter, um, it, it really comes from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 4, Daniel describes King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in this way. And even the, the prophet Ezekiel, we mentioned the prophets earlier, in Ezekiel 17, God promises that he will plant his people as a tiny sapling, a baby infant tree, and that they will grow into a, a giant cedar, a giant cedar. So this imagery, it's not uncommon, but the way Jesus uses it here is shocking. It's surprising. How can a, a seed so tiny, a tiny mustard seed, produce such a great tree capable of supporting and giving refuge, protecting life. And why would Jesus choose this tree? I just told you back in Ezekiel that we have the image of a, a sapling and a mighty cedar, right? Why would Jesus choose a mustard tree? Quite frankly, it's a shrub compared to a mighty cedar, all right? This is startling, unexpected, unforeseen, and surprising. And that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. But Jesus is not done. He has one more parable for us. He says in verse 20, And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, in this parable, Jesus wants us to enter the world of a first century woman baking bread. All right? Whether you're rich or poor, important or unimportant, Jesus says to understand the kingdom of God, 
You have to think like one of the most insignificant and unimportant people in his day. And that's a woman baking bread. Nobody cared about women baking bread in Jesus' day. It just wasn't important. This woman takes leaven or something like yeast, probably uh, sourdough or something like that, a very tiny amount, and hides it in three measures of flour. Now, uh, I don't see Jen here. I think she's probably with Chloe. Jen is our resident baker, all right? So she could explain all of this. Oh, she's with kids and she's dead. Yeah. So she could explain all of this much better than me, all right? She understands it. And I bet, I bet Debbie could too. But I, I get the point. I get the point that Jesus is making. Someone who was a nobody in Jesus' day, in Jesus' world, hit a tiny minuscule amount of leaven in what amounts to 50 pounds of flour. And it leavened. It caused that dough from those 50 pounds of flour to rise. It leavened all of it. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. Now, uh, I once, Julie and I, we love to make homemade pizza at home. And so we'll go buy dough from the store and and uh, once I, it was my responsibility to get the dough and set it out and let it, because it, when it's really cold, it's really hard to, to spread out. So you kind of let it get up to warm temperature, room temperature. So I did that. I left it on the counter in its package and I forgot about it. I just left it. And I, I came back, you know, five minutes is what I told her. It was probably more like an hour later. Uh, I came back to it and this dough is just bulging out of the package. It popped the package over. It spilled over onto the counter. And what had happened was this amazing chemical reaction had taken place. The yeast was feeding on the sugars in the dough, and it was releasing carbon dioxide, and it caused this this dough to rise right in front of me. Of course, I wasn't paying attention. But all of this was happening at, at a microscopic level, at a tiny, tiny level. I couldn't perceive it with my eyes. And Jesus is warning us, wanting us to get in this mindset, this idea of tiny and small, something starting from small beginnings and ending up something so big that no one would have ever guessed it. His point in the parables is exactly the same in both. He wants us to marvel at the unexpected. How can the kingdom of God be like this? A mustard seed? Leaven? But let's not forget the synagogue story. Everything that happened in that story was wrong by everyone's standards who was there, right? Nobody liked what Jesus did except for Jesus and the woman, right? The synagogue was a place of worship, not a place for the dirty business of making the sick well. And the Sabbath day was most certainly the wrong time for healing. The Sabbath was for worship and for rest, not work. And this woman in this story, insignificant, forgotten, and tormented by a demon, she was most certainly the wrong person for such a miracle. Jesus was trying to build a kingdom in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. And to this charge, Jesus answers us in the parables and says, absolutely no. No. God's kingdom is not like what you think. Despite its small beginnings, God's kingdom will become a a mighty refuge for many and an unstoppable force that invades the entire creation like a little piece of leaven invades all that flour. Now, specifically... I want, us to, I want us to take away three truths about the kingdom of God from these parables and Jesus' encounter with this woman. You're going to see them on the screen up there. The first is this. The kingdom of God will be established 
in unexpected ways. Everything about these parables, everything about Jesus' encounter with the the woman in the synagogue is unexpected. The kingdom of God will be established in unexpected ways. An earthly king builds a kingdom using power, force, maybe even deceit, but not so with the kingdom of God. In the same way that Jesus showed mercy to that tormented woman who everyone else had forgotten, God's kingdom would come about through kindness, mercy, and compassion. Kindness, mercy, and compassion shown to the very least of these, right? It would seem small, unimpressive, and even unimportant in the beginning, just like a little bitty tiny mustard seed. But soon it would grow into a mighty refuge. God's kingdom would grow into a a mighty refuge that would offer safety and security and healing for many. That's the first point. The second thing, the second truth that I think Jesus wants us to see about the kingdom is this. The kingdom of God will be made up of unexpected people. Now, uh, we all remember, we, we have to all remember, this can't just be me. We all remember playing kickball or some other sport, uh, maybe at recess or after school, right? Well, I was the chunky kid at this stage of my life. I was, my mom called me Husky. I was Husky. And if you were in the group and you were the team captain and you were picking folks to be on your kickball team, you don't pick me. You don't pick the chunky kid. You don't pick the slow kid. You definitely don't pick the kid with glasses. Sorry if you got glasses in here this morning, but if you got glasses, you don't get picked. You pick the strongest kids. You pick the fastest kids. You pick the kids that you know are going to help you win because that's what you want. You want to win. And then, of course, you, you pick your buddies, right? Because you can't, can't leave your buddies behind. But Jesus says for his kingdom, absolutely not. He says, I'll take the person that everyone else has forgotten or written off Uh, like this woman in the synagogue or this woman that uh, is insignificant and unimportant, uh, the baker of bread in the parable. I'll take the person that everyone else thinks is dirty, unclean, and unworthy. Give me the poor, the oppressed, the sick, and the broken for my kingdom. And then third, the last truth that I think Jesus wants us to see about his kingdom, about God's kingdom, is that the kingdom of God would conquer its enemy in unexpected ways. The world did not care that Jesus noticed this woman and that he healed her in the synagogue. In fact, some of them even hated him for it. To them, she was invisible. She was a nobody. She was not important. She had nothing to offer. But Jesus knew that showing mercy to her and many other seemingly insignificant and ineffective acts of kindness, compassion, and grace they would be like the tiny bit of leaven, the tiny bit of leaven that no one could have imagined was responsible for leavening, for rising all of that dough. The kingdom of God would not conquer, will not conquer the forces of darkness with an invading, mighty army carrying spectacular weapons. No, the kingdom of God would come in a much less impressive way. Through the death of its beaten, mocked, and crucified king, Jesus would do the unthinkable. As king, he would die for his people. The kingdom of God would conquer its enemy in unexpected ways. So, if these are true about the kingdom, and I absolutely think they are, and it's entirely, the kingdom is entirely unexpected, both in the way it's built 
uh, in the people that are a part of it and in the ways that it conquers its enemies? What are these truths about the kingdom? What do they mean for our church? How do they apply to us? What do they require of us? Well, I think the first thing is this. These truths about the kingdom remind us of the importance of our motivation. The importance of our motivation. The kingdom of God is so completely unexpected in all of the ways that, that I've just shown you because its goal is completely different. It's completely different than any other kingdom that's ever existed and any other kingdom that will ever exist. The goal of God's kingdom is His glory. It, it seems strange to us. It, it has to seem strange to us because we're accustomed to building our own kingdoms, to worrying about ourselves, worrying about our own lives, chasing our own glory, right? But God's kingdom is, is about proclaiming the gospel and declaring God's glory. It's, it's different than ours. If, if as a church, we are joining God on His mission to build His kingdom by proclaiming the gospel, then our goal has to be the kingdom's goal. It has to be God's glory. And let's, let me be really honest with you, because this, and, and this really scares me, how easy this can happen. We can make just a, a few little changes around here very easily. We get, we get Micah back up here, and uh, we could... We could really put on a show. I mean, I like lasers and pyrotechnics and smoke and all that stuff. I like all that stuff. We could draw a crowd. We could draw a big crowd. And that's, that's, no, that, that's no testament to mine or Ted's leadership or our ability. It's, that's what people want. That's what they're chasing after. They want a show. We could do that. Ted and I, we could, we could adjust our sermons just a little bit so they were uh, a little bit more about you and your happiness and a little less about God and uh, His and your holiness. We could, we could make those little changes. We could tickle some ears, preach sermons that are, are, are much happier, I guess, or, or much easily received, much easier to respond to. But Jesus reminds us, both in the story and the parables this morning, as a church and as individuals, that we're not building our own kingdom. We're joining Him as He builds God's kingdom for God's glory. So it has to be God's glory that motivates us, right? And the Apostle Paul is, is incredibly helpful here. In 2 Corinthians 4, he, he writes this. He says, Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There are people at Corinth that are questioning Paul. They're questioning his ministry and his apostleship. They want him to use this, um, this very ornate and, um, and large and fancy type of, of speech. And Paul says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul was all about God's glory, and he wasn't going to compromise. The second thing is this. Jesus' teaching this morning reminds us that if his kingdom will include unexpected people, 
then we have to seek to include the unexpected people in our church and in our lives. I mean, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, right, and, you know, we're building God's kingdom, we're going to fill it with people that we like or people who are like us. That's just what we do, right? We're comfortable that way. That's convenient. That's easy. But Jesus says, no, we, we cannot be a church or people whose relationships are based upon our own comfort, convenience, or benefit. Because we belong to God's kingdom and are working for His glory, we cannot just love those who are most like us or from whom we stand to gain the most. Man, how easy is it to do that? To just love people who are most like us and who will offer us something. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, belongs to the beggar, the prostitute, the thief, the addict, the widow, the orphan, and the person that's sitting next to you this morning who you're withholding forgiveness from, right? It belongs to the people that are not like us, that are other than us, that are different than we are. Belongs to the people the world has forgotten and written off as unimportant. It's a kingdom of redeemed sinners, just like you and me if you're in Christ. And let me tell you, it it puts God's glory on display like nothing else. Now, you, you may even be thinking right now, I don't, I don't know if I really belong here, right? I don't, I don't know if I fit in. Well, can I, just, can I just reassure you that you're in really, really good company this morning? Because none of us belong here. None of us belong in this room. None of us belong uh, under the grace of Christ. None of us belong. We were all once outsiders, broken, destitute sinners who needed the grace and mercy that only comes from Jesus. He forgave our sins. He forgave our sins and made us citizens of His kingdom. And He offers the same to any person in this room right now who hasn't received it. He offers it to you. You need only to repent of your sins and believe the gospel and you will be saved. That's a promise in the scriptures. And you can join us as we join God as the church at Blue Ridge and building God's kingdom here in Blue Ridge and around the world. It it, if that's your case this morning, man, I want to talk to you. Come find me after the service. Find Ted. Ask the person sitting next to you. We would love to tell you more about the gospel. And then finally, and we're finished, God's kingdom reminds us that it will not be through conventional means that Blue Ridge is reached with the gospel. Paul, Paul's really helpful here again. He writes in, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy stronghold. Paul says that the primary tools, the primary weapons of his ministry, they weren't physical, they weren't where you think, they were spiritual weapons. They were spiritual weapons. And they remind us that if... Uh, that the world is telling us that if we want to see success as a church and if we really want to see God's kingdom grow, this is what the world says, that we need to, to have things like the, uh, the, ba- the biggest building, the best building. We need to offer the most innovative programs. We need to have the most talented leaders. And I can tell you right now that you failed miserably at that, Ted and I because we were by far not the most talented. Uh, but the world says you've got to have those guys. You've got to put on the best show in town, and you got to keep people coming back for more. That's how the world would tell us 
to both grow as a church and, and ultimately to further God's kingdom. That's what the world would tell us. And this makes sense, right? This makes sense if our goal is an earthly kingdom and our own glory. We'd achieve that. But we're a part of God's kingdom. We're a part of God's kingdom, and we are after His glory, and that means we're going to do things in unexpected ways. In unexpected ways, and we're going to use unexpected means. We're going to use unexpected uh, tools. We will never see the kingdom of God expand in Blue Ridge because we have the most innovative children's program, because we have uh, the best music or the most interesting sermon series. We're never going to reach Blue Ridge that way. No, the expansion of the God's kingdom will come as we're obedient to His Word, as we're fervent in prayer for our lost neighbors and friends, and as we sacrifice of ourselves, of our time and our resources to minister to and engage with those who are not yet believers, who who don't know the gospel. It's going to be dirty, messy, inconvenient, seemingly unimportant, ineffective, and inconsequential work. But the kingdom reminds us, and God's word promises us, that from these small beginnings, God has promised that he will build a glorious kingdom, a glorious kingdom that offers a refuge for many here in Blue Ridge and around the world. I want to invite the band to to come back up and uh, I want to give some time this morning for, for you to respond to, to these truths from God's Word. Um, we're not going to do anything special. These guys are going to sing. Maybe you just want to stand and pray where you are. Maybe you want to stay in your seat and, and meditate and think on the things that, uh, that God has said from His Word. Whatever it is this morning, I want everyone to take some time as we're singing to, to respond to, this, uh, to these truths from God's Word this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get going, okay? Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for the sweet reminder this morning uh, that we are not here for ourselves or for our own glory, but that you have uh, called us out of darkness and uh, made us a part of your kingdom for your glory. And so I pray as we plant the church at Blue Ridge, I pray that many would come to faith in Christ but I pray that you would not let us lose sight of why we're here, that we would not lose sight of of what truly motivates us, that our desire, that our passion would always be the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. It's in your precious son's name that I ask these things. Amen.